0: Brothers and sisters in Christ, the message today comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Mark Twain once wrote that he put a cat and dog in a cage together in an experiment to see if they would get along. They did. So he put in a bird, a pig, and a goat. They too got along after just a few adjustments. Then he put in a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic, and soon there was no living thing at all. (laughs) Today we're going to be looking at a similar source of conflict that existed between Jew and Gentile. We will also consider what sort of relationship it should have been, and of course there will be some good lessons from that for us today. So let's read from Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 13. Therefore, Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, that's very clear, isn't it? Whilst Paul's writing is very rich in meaning, he is often not very easily understandable. So, what is all this talk of circumcision and uncircumcision? At the time of his writing, there was a very deep divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles. One perhaps that we can understand today because it's essentially racially based. Something like uh, the Maori-Pakeha debate or the black and white confrontations that we had back in Africa where I come from. Circumcision was an important symbol of Jewishness with two purposes. Firstly, responsibility to serve as an example to the pagan world of a holy people in a living relationship with the one true God. And secondly, it was a reminder of the covenant made with Abraham right back in Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you will be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Thus, right at the very beginning of the Jewish nation, in fact, well before they were even known as Jews, the Lord sets in place an unforgettable symbol of the bond between God and man. Unfortunately, by the time of Christ, most Jews had forgotten their roles as ambassadors for God and instead they began to see circumcision as a sign of spiritual and national superiority. Its message had been deformed to look inwards as a kind of badge for entry to an exclusive club rather than a reminder for outward missionary work to the world as God has intended. As an example to show you how they were thinking, strict Jewish men would make a daily prayer to God to thank God that they were neither woman, Samaritan, or Gentile. Can you imagine that? Having heard that little gem, we might think that that's a little bit offensive. But really, are we so much better? Let's not forget that we too generally have our own little idols of superiority. And we'll go on to talk about those a bit more later. As a consequence of this mental attitude, the Gentiles became known by the Jews as the uncircumcision. And it was a disrespectful term implying that non-Jewish people were outside that circle of God's love. Uncircumcision, on the face of it, it sounds like quite a sophisticated insult, but we shouldn't make that mistake, because we can compare its effect at that time to the use of unpleasant words like nigger today. They have a very deep force. The words circumcised and uncircumcised became defining differences between Israel and the Gentile nations, Uh, their neighbours, and and even after Jesus' life, death and resurrection, they continued to be a source of discord right in the fellowship of the New Testament church. In New Testament times, of course, circumcision continued to be faithfully practiced by devout Jews in recognition of God's continuing covenant with Israel. In fact, both John the Baptist and Jesus were circumcised. The powerful significance of the practice is shown by the way that it divided the early church, which included uh, believers from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. The Gentile believers, well, they regarded their Jewish brethren as a little bit eccentric because of their dietary laws, their Sabbath rules, and their circumcision practices. But on the other hand, the Jewish believers tended to believe that the uncircumcised Gentile brothers were enlightened and disobedient to the law of Moses. So this is the state of play, as Paul writes. There is this tension between Jewish and Gentile believers over a symbol that, actually for many, had lost its true significance. As a pastor concerned for his flock, Paul must address this matter firmly, especially since it dangerously holds the possibility of diverting Christians' understanding of salvation from grace to works. Don't forget that around about this time there were a bunch of believers going around. They were known as Judaizers, okay, and they were advoca- advocating that believers of a Gentile background must ceremonially become Jews through the rite of circumcision before they could be admitted to the brotherhood of Christians. And just think, today we might think that giving up drinking or smoking is a disincentive to become a Christian. Imagine if you had to be circumcised first. <laughs> Paul cannot tolerate this. He wants believers of both Jewish and Gentile origin to understand that they are part of a new paradigm, a new way with a message of unity to all who participate. And this is why he starts the section off with a call to remember. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, And strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is pointing out that insofar as reconciliation with God is concerned, the Gentiles were previously in a truly hopeless position. In fact, there are five kinds of trouble that he mentions in verse 5. They were without Christ. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I'd say that's a pretty significant amount of bother. Let's have a look at these problems in a little more detail. Firstly, the Gentiles were without Christ. Well, they weren't Christians, so how could they have Christ? It sounds a little bit obvious, doesn't it? Well, not really, because Paul is speaking of something else here. Remember that the Jews had lived literally for thousands of years with the hope of a messiah. One could argue that the earliest evidence of that promise is found right back in the beginning of Genesis, when God proclaims his curse on the serpent in Genesis 3. Okay? And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the he? The he is Christ. Okay? Right back then we're talking about, about Christ. Christ. They had lots of ideas as to what kind of man the Messiah would be, and not many of them were right, by the way. But he was expected to rescue Israel and to restore it to its previous position at the top of the heap. They had a promise from the one true God, and they also had real-life evidence that his word was to be taken seriously. Because they had all this history with him. They'd walked through the desert with him. They'd heard from his prophets. They'd seen his punishments. They'd seen his prophecies fulfilled. And because of that, they knew that they had real hope. They knew the Messiah would come. On the other hand, if you were a Gentile worshipping one of the many Baals at the time, and when I looked up Baal on Google, there were heaps and heaps of different kinds of Baals. The best one that you might hope for for on any given day was that Baal would be in a good mood and not zap you. The Gentiles had no history of hope, no concrete evidence of their God's intervention. And no reason to believe that things would ever change or be better than they were. Secondly, the Gentiles were aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel. This is the next privilege that the Gentiles lacked the citizenship of Israel. What did that mean? Well, to be a citizen meant belonging to a group of people who had a relationship with God. They definitely had that relationship. He had blessed them richly with his covenants, with his law, with his priesthood, sacrifices, promises, and guidance. They lived under his protection and they enjoyed his love. If you were an alien, it meant that you could see these things going on all around you, but you had no part in them. And moreover, since that citizenship essentially depended on having the right relatives, while one could technically convert to Judaism, without the right genetics, you were really just a poor relative. Thirdly, the Gentiles were strangers from the covenants of promise. Now, Peter Peter Martin, don't you think strangers from the covenants of promise would make a nice band name? Yeah? I think it would be good. But that's not what it was. Let's take a quick refresher on this word covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two people or two groups that involves promises on the part of each to the other. The Hebrew word for covenant probably means between us and it emphasizes the relational element that lies at the basis of all covenants. And these human treaties or covenants were either between equals, that's how they happen sometimes, or they were between a superior and an inferior. And if we're talking about a covenant with God, then obviously it's between a superior and an inferior. A covenant in the biblical sense implies much more than just a contract or a simple agreement. Because a contract always has an end date, it will end then, while a covenant is a permanent arrangement, it carries on forever. Another difference is that a con- contract generally only involves one part of a person. Okay? Somebody might employ me uh, to weld up a frame for their desk. They want just my skill. Okay? Whereas a covenant covers the whole person. They want all of, the, of that person. The concept of a covenant between God and his people is one of the most theological truths in the Bible. And as an illustration of how uh, deeply it's interwoven into scripture, it's not uncommon these days for us to talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant rather than the Old Testament and the New Testament because really that's the division. And although we seldom use the word covenant anymore, it is still very, very relevant to us today because as Christians we live and have hope because of that New Covenant made by Christ which was prophesied so long ago by Jeremiah. And he wrote, Behold the days are coming, says the Lord, No more shall every man teach his neighbour, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. There are quite a few different divine covenants in the Old Testament, and I'm sure we're familiar with many of them. In the New Testament, though, Paul makes a clear distinction between these as either covenants of law, Or covenants of promise. He argues that the covenant established at Mount Sinai, the law with a capital L, is a ministry of death and condemnation, a covenant that cannot be obeyed because of human weakness and sin. In this regard, it's wholly consistent with Scripture that Paul doesn't say that the Gentiles are strangers from the covenant of law here in Ephesians, because they, like every human, remain subject to its judgment. And that's why we see him using this very specific terminology. On the other hand, covenants of promise are God's guarantee that he will provide salvation in spite of God's inability to keep their side of the agreement because of sin. The provision of a chosen people through whom the Messiah would be born is the promise of the covenants with Adam and David. The covenant with Noah is God's promise to withhold judgment on nature whilst salvation is occurring. And in the covenant with Abraham, God promised to bless Abraham's descendants because of his faith. These many covenants of promise may be actually considered to come together as one covenant of grace, which was eventually fulfilled, it was finished up in the life and ministry of Jesus. His death ushered in the new covenant under which we are justified by God's grace and mercy rather than our human attempts to keep the law. And Jesus himself is the mediator of this better covenant between God and humankind. Covenants were traditionally sealed by the shedding of blood. Jesus' sacrificial death, the shedding of his blood, that we have just remembered, served as the oath or pledge that God made to us to seal this new covenant. It is therefore substantially superior to the covenant of law, as the book of Hebrews declares. For the law, remember that's we're talking about the law, with the capital L here. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son, Jesus, who has been perfected forever. To return to our passage, it's very significant that the, the Gentiles were alienated from these promise of covenant because they represented such great hope, not just through their benefits but because of the one who had made the covenant in the first place. Let's just say you have to go and visit a surgeon and he picks up a scalpel with the intent of making a hole in you. Okay, you will definitely want to be sure that he is who he says he is and that he is properly qualified to make that hole. Nobody wants to make the risk that they're going to wake up with the wrong piece removed, for example. Now, Israel had both the confidence and the evidence that God, who was He said He was, and would steadfastly deliver exactly what He promised. Always. Now, think about that. Have you ever met any man who could do that? So, if Israel knew that God said, so Israel knew that if God said that a Messiah was coming to deliver them, then that's exactly what would happen. The Gentiles, however, they had no such benefits. They truly were strangers, and what a terrible position to be in. This is why, fourthly, Paul very specifically states that the Gentiles have no hope. Now, it wouldn't be fair to say that previous to Jesus' arrival, that the Gentiles walked around in a perpetually depressed state like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh. They did have a lot of gods. And they did in some sense derive hope from them. But was it a real hope, one they could rest on? Paul says no. Why? He answers in the next breath. They have no hope and no God. He is restating what he has, really, as he has already shown. That term relegates them to and associates them with the fate of the world and the flesh. They are condemned by the law. I don't think that the average human reader of this letter, Christian or not, would like these words, to think that there was no hope. Surely, there is something somewhere. Can I make a cunning plan? Is the truth as harsh and uncompromising as this? Well, yes, actually. This is why Paul has been so emphatic and piled fact on fact to firmly shut that door. But... We know we should be excited when we see that word in the Bible. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What do you think about that term far off? I have two brothers. One lives in Australia and the other lives just north of London. They are technically far off. But not really, because today that term has generally lost its meaning. If I want to go anywhere in the world, I can. If I want to go and see my brother, I can. I can jump on an aeroplane. And literally, I can be on the other side of the world in just a day. And thanks to social networking, like Facebook and Twitter, we can literally read and see, almost up to the minute, what other people are doing, thousands and thousands of kilometres away. To Paul's readers, though, this would be something... Like magic, you know, for them far off was an unattainable place because their lives were largely defined by what they could walk. To say that somebody was far off would have suggested someone you would normally never have any contact with at all. And it was more than just a fact of geography because for the Jews the term far off was commonly understood to describe the Gentile nations as being distant from God while Israel was thought of as near. I think this is a very interesting image because of the way it correctly emphasizes God as being at the center of creation. Okay? Like the planets around the sun, God is in the center, the Jews near him and then the Gentiles were far off around the outside. There is a real sense of grand movement in this verse of God reaching out with both hands to draw the Gentiles back in from a great distance bringing them to enjoy the benefits of being at the centre of things. Note also how this this movement happened. They have been brought near. They didn't run or walk or fly there by themselves. Somebody else did that work for them. And for that matter, it was done for us. That someone was, of course, Jesus Christ shedding his blood on a cross to bridge an otherwise uncrossable divide. So, in summary, in this passage, we see a divine recovery of otherwise hopeless men that is as true for believers today as it was for the Gentiles back then. Paul has made his point that it isn't circumcision or uncircumcision that is important, but that all believers enjoy a unity in Christ that comes from having the same condemnation by the law, the same sinful past and the same undeserved forgiveness. He has shown the Gentile readers how far they have come to have this relationship with God. And he has shown the Jewish readers that they now have absolutely no grounds to consider themselves superior. Well, so far we've taken quite an analytical look at this passage. If we leave this passage without application to real life, then we're going to be missing out on some really important stuff. And there are two main challenges I want to draw out from this passage. The first concerns hope. And we've spoken a great deal about that today in terms of the Gentiles' utter and total lack of it outside of God's grace. And it might seem that their story is irrelevant to us right now. After all, they lived a long time ago and Gentile is not really a, a current phrase. But I want to ask you, what does your hope rest on now? If you're anything like me, which would be pretty impressive because I'm nearly perfect. Why are you laughing? If you're anything like me, then in truth, your hope is probably scattered. I know that I'm saved. Praise God. But who will keep the money coming in? Who's going to fix the house? Who is going to look after the wife and kids? How will my spiritual development go forward? How can we deal with it? this or that needy person. I have all these things circulating in my head and way, way too often I tend to look inwards towards myself for answers. Does this ring bells with anyone? What else do we hope in? Lotto? The government? The police? The trouble is that we have compartmentalised our lives. This part for God and this part for me. And by the way, I just wish I didn't have to worry so much. It isn't consistent or scriptural to behave like this. If God is truly our hope for salvation, then he is also our hope for absolutely everything else. And we should let him be that. He wants that from us. He wants us to hand over every part of our lives and rest in him. Isn't that part of why Jesus said in Matthew 12, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And while Jesus is really talking about handing over our sin here, and we shouldn't forget that because we don't want to be making the scripture say something that it shouldn't. That relinquishing of sin, that, that handing over and consequent forgiveness, comes along with the chance to hand Everything over to God. All of those worries that I've just mentioned. Previously, as Paul said, we were aliens to that possibility. But now, praise Jesus, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now we can have a conversation with God and be heard, not just about spiritual matters, but about anything. Now we have a trustworthy place to supply all of our hope. Friends, this is a lesson that I am at the very beginning of learning. Maybe you are further along, maybe not. But I want to encourage you today to consider where your hope lies. If you are a believer, don't hold back. Hand it on to God. He will manage whatever it is for our good and His glory. But remember, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything will always be chocolate cake. But it does mean that whilst we might not understand why things happen they do, we can be sure that we do not have to cope alone. And our helper is the very most wonderful person possible, Jesus Christ. John Henry Jowd, an English congregational pastor, made this very wise observation a hundred years ago. He said, The fatal mistake for the believer is to seek to bear life's load in a single collar. God never intended a man to carry his burden alone. Christ therefore deals only in yokes. A yoke is a neck harness for two, and the Lord himself pleads to be one of the two. He wants to share the labor of any galling task. The secret of peace and victory in the Christian life is found in putting off the taxing collar of self and accepting the master's relaxing yoke. Isn't that wonderful? Well, why wouldn't we want to do it then? Start today. Serious note though. If you're not hearing this as a believer, then you are living just like the Gentiles that we have been talking about, without God and consequently without hope. I beg of you, take up the Lord's yoke as he says. You will not regret it. The second thing I want to talk about goes back to this matter of circumcision. In our men's group that we have on Thursday nights, we've been going through the book of Philippians, and we've been helped in this by first watching a DVD created by an English gentleman, John, an English gentleman, marvellous, isn't it, by the name of Barry Cooper of Discipleship Explored, and then we talk about what we've seen and what we've read. Now, I'm going to borrow unashamedly from that DVD because its message is so pertinent today. Last week we were in chapter 3, and that's exactly what Rachel read to us earlier. So hopefully we remember from it, and I think we're going to have it up in a moment here, that Paul warns against dogs who are evil workers. Now, today we might think of dogs as beloved pets, but in the Jewish language to call someone a dog was a very, very serious insult. And although the text doesn't specifically mention it, we can be reasonably certain that Paul was referring again to those pesky Judaizers, those proponents for circumcision. And his language strongly suggests that he didn't like them at all. Paul was against any idea that acts in the flesh could gain merit with God. So there's a strong warning to us today in what we have read about the Jews' fleshly attitude towards circumcision. They had come to see it as a badge of admission to a select club rather than a reminder of their task. If I have the badge, I'm in, I'm okay. See, there's naughty there. You don't have the badge. Never mind that I never earned it, but that makes you inferior to me. What a disgraceful attitude. The trouble is that in many cases, we do the same things in the modern church, but with different tokens. Circumcision has been replaced by legalism. We develop a self-righteous attitude. I'm acceptable to God because I read my Bible every day and I go to church on Sundays. If you read your Bible and go to church, like I do, then you will also be acceptable. And by the way, why is your lipstick such a bright colour? We need to repent not just of our sin, but also of our righteousness. The question is, how can we possibly bring the message of the gospel to the nations And we're required to do that. And it's a message that is essentially about grace when we are outstandingly ungracious amongst ourselves. Now, there are three serious problems that can develop from a self-righteous attitude. Firstly, we can become proud because of how well we're doing, forgetting that we have no skill or ability that wasn't given to us by God in the first place. So we have no justification for that pride. Secondly, we may become depressed because we always fail to live up to this or that standard. And this can bring about something truly terrible. Because we consistently fail, we start to give up on God. We say, I can never do what you want. and We turn our backs and we walk away from Him. We have the wrong image of God. Thirdly, we may feel as though God is in our debt because of all the good stuff that we have done. Lord, I prayed for two hours today, so now you owe me a Ferrari. Again, this can result in us walking away from God on the basis that I didn't get the Ferrari. So God clearly doesn't exist or deserve my excellent work for that matter. Those things are unnecessarily burdensome and definitely aren't righteousness. Righteousness, as we've read in this passage in Philippians, it comes from God through faith. It's a different thing with a different consequence. Yet we we continue to feel this need to be acceptable to God. So where will we find the answer? Well, John Bunyan wrote this in grace abounding to the chief of sinners. He writes, One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, there is my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always there, right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off, my temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look from myself to him and could reckon that all my character was like the coins a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home in Christ my Lord. Now Christ was all, my righteousness, sanctification, Redemption. Friends, we must strongly resist any temptation to think of ourselves like the circumcision. We are acceptable to God because of the sacrifice made by Jesus on the cross. Nothing we can do can change the magnitude of what we already have. The unreserved love and forgiveness of God. There is nothing intrinsic in the rules we think are important in our faith. We obey And serve because he first loved us, not to even up the score. What are some of the ways this behavior is evidenced? This trying to make the score even. When we feel that we or someone we know has disobeyed God and are therefore less of a Christian than they ought to be, we must remember that we are wrong and that Christ is our righteousness. If someone asks us, Are you a Christian? And you reply, yes, but not a very good one. Then we must remember that we are wrong because Christ is our righteousness. In weeks when we've read our Bibles, we've been to church faithfully, and we've talked to someone about Jesus, and because of those things, we feel we are more acceptable to God. Then we must remember that we are wrong and that Christ is our righteousness. This is the truth of the believer's rest circumcised or uncircumcised, white, black, yellow, male or female, there is no distinction. We were all far off from God with no hope. But now in Christ Jesus, we who once were far off have been graciously brought near by the blood of Christ, and our righteousness is in Him. What else can we do but give Him praise and glory and thanks for that? Let us pray.